Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Daniel Gordis, author of the new book, Impossible Takes Longer. 75 years after its creation, has Israel fulfilled its founder's dreams? Uh, Daniel, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you very, very much. A pleasure to be here. And congratulations on the book. So has Israel fulfilled the founder's dreams? In many ways, yes. In many ways, I think, in ways that people don't commonly think about. I think when we think about Israel, most people tend to immediately conjure up images of conflict, of uh, all sorts of issues that make the press on a relatively regular basis. And then they say, oh my God, Israel's in trouble. Or these days in 2023, they might be talking about Israel's uh, judicial issues and say, wow, even the democracy seems to be in trouble. Doesn't sound like a huge success to me. Uh, but if we think about what Israel was really intended to do, and we go back 75 years to its creation or 100 years to the origins of the Zionist movement, uh, what we see is that the people who created the state were trying to create a place where the Jewish people would be able to live as it could live nowhere else. They were trying to create a new Jew, a Jew who could defend herself or himself, a Jew who would speak their own language, who would live in their ancestral homeland, who would not look about nervously to see when the invitation to live in whatever country they were living in would expire. Uh, they were trying to change the entire existential condition of the Jew. And that, Israel's been an unbelievable success, so much so that it's actually sometimes difficult for us to even recall the reality that Israel was trying to change. Yeah, as you point out uh, fairly early on, uh, some Jewish people say that Israel's greatest achievement is that it actually exists. Well, that was by no means a foregone conclusion, Richard, as you very well know. I mean, there was a nail-biter of a vote in the United Nations on November 29, 1947, when the idea of creating a Jewish state came up at the General Assembly. Uh, it needed a two-thirds majority to win, and it barely, barely got it. It got it, in fact, only because the General Assembly went on recess for the Thanksgiving holiday in the fourth week of November in the States, and the delegation that was representing the interests of the Jewish people spent that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday frantically trying to work over some of the other delegations that they thought they might be able to get. Had the vote taken place on time, it probably would not have passed. And then, of course, five, six months later, Israel is created on May 14th, 1948, and it's immediately attacked by five Arab countries. Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and Egypt. Iraq didn't even have a shared border with Israel, but joined the festivities anyway. Uh, it was by no means clear that it could hold out then. And you know, we don't have to go through all of Israeli history here, but there have been many times when the country either militarily or financially seemed on the brink of falling apart. Uh, and it's here. So when I talk to some of my friends, both the ones who are also writers and people who think about the things that I do, but also people who do many other things in life, and we'll just casually say, well, what do you think our major accomplishment is? Almost instinctively, people will say, we exist. That's the main thing. No small thing. And even beyond uh, that achievement of existing, the question of success as you frame it at the beginning of the book is a tricky one. Um, you say it would be hard to imagine a more contentious question. Uh, you point to the dizzying array of contradictions that uh, for some it's the most hated nation in the world, but it's also for others the most beloved. There are unexpected successes, maddening disappointments. So it's, it is, as you say, a tricky question to define in a way that is almost unique, perhaps, for any nation. 
I think that's right. If you look at the relative size of Israel, which is basically only about 9 million people, and you think of the amount of space that it takes up, you know, in the olden days when there were printed newspapers, we spoke about column inches. I think that's a little bit less relevant today. But still, you go on to CNN or Fox News or the BBC or whatever you happen to look at, uh, Israel, for a country of 9 million people, takes up an inordinate amount of airtime and, and oxygen in the room. I think at one stage you say that it's the hundredth in size and ranked sixth in terms of media attention. Exactly. Media attention in terms of written media. That's correct. In other words, it's a hundredth in size. And it is certainly one would be very hard pressed to think of even 20 countries that get discussed internationally more than Israel. People are both fascinated by it and put off by it and intrigued by it. And one of the things, as you know, that I argue in the book is that what intrigues people is that Israel is really, in many ways, one of the most dramatic stories of human beings making a comeback or a people making a comeback in all of human history. Let's remember that just three or four years before Israel's created, uh, Europe is literally busy exterminating the Jews of Europe. And of course, we tend to, we, we all understand that Hitler lost and the Nazis lost the war. But it's very important to remember, for example, that the crown jewel of the Jewish people in Europe for many centuries, for about 600 years, had been the Jews of Poland. There were about 3 million Jews in Poland prior to the war. And at the end of the war, there were 30,000. Hitler exterminated 90% of them. Uh, and that was the central Jewish community of the world. America was much more peripheral then. Palestine, of course, was very peripheral and small. Uh, so to a certain extent in the mid-1940s, it really looked like the world had conspired either actively or passively to either eradicate the Jews or to allow the Jews to be eradicated. And all of a sudden, here they were being voted into existence by the United Nations, holding out against these five Arab armies that attacked. And over the course of decades, becoming a technological powerhouse, an intellectual powerhouse, um, in all sorts of ways, a great success, of course, along with many sad failures, as many countries have. But if you care about this particular country, as I do, then those successes are even more maddening and frustrating. And of course, I mean, exactly as you say, the Nazis and the final solution, the Holocaust, it, it still continues to, to have its grip over as it still haunts us. But in fact, you put the historical framework in an even broader context there. As, as you point out, one of the reasons that the story of Israel, I think mesmerizes is the word that you use in the, uh, in the introduction, is because this is a, a people that had been defeated 2,000 years earlier, somehow had managed to survive while those who defeated them, like the ancient Egyptians, were gone. So there is a, a sense in which, in, in that broadest of senses, uh, this is a remarkable story of rebirth and resilience. It is a remarkable story. I mean, when you go back to the biblical story of the Hebrews, for example, African-Americans in the United States uh, took tremendous inspiration from that. And they talked about, you know, go down Moses, Moses' way down to Egypt land, tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. And that became, of course, a metaphor for what African-Americans in the United States wanted in the mid-1800s. And a similar thing has happened in this world. When we think about it, Palestinian nationalism is actually a result of the success of Jewish nationalism. Palestinians had never had a national movement before there was a Jewish state. And then all of a sudden they looked around in the 1950s and the 1960s and they saw a people coming back to life, breathing new life into its culture, its, its economy, its position in the world. 
And they said, we want to have that too. And I think Palestinian nationalism in that regard, by the way, is an, is an incredible accomplishment of Israel. And I'm, I'm one of those people who would like to see Palestinian nationalism have its ambitions realized. I would very much like for the Palestinian people to be independent. Uh, so it is a story that's both mesmerizing and, and ancient in certain ways, and also, you know, kind of uniquely modern in others. Barbara Putnam, the very well-known historian, said that the Jews are the only people today who live in the same place, practice the same religion, and speak the same language that their ancestors did thousands of years ago in the Western world, of course. And that's true, and it's an extraordinary accomplishment. Yes, it's interesting, that point uh, about nationalism. You you draw some fascinating uh, parallels between the foundation of Israel and, for example, the United States. And you point to how so often a country like the United States is founded on a, a kind of a universal set of values encapsulated in that case by Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. But, but for Israel, it's different, isn't it? That it, this is not universal. It is, in fact, as you point out, highly particular. And that highly particular foundation or purpose is about saving the Jewish people, which draws on that history that you were just talking about there. That's quite right. I mean, it's, to a certain extent, the United States and Israel are actually in their own group together because they have a stated purpose. I used to go to England relatively regularly, and, and when I would lecture about these issues and I would speak about the purpose of a country, people would come up to me afterwards and say, what are you talking about? I mean, what, what, what's the purpose of England, the Magna Carta? I mean, how far back does one have to go to have a purpose? But the United States and Israel, I think, are, are different than most countries because they had a very specific purpose in mind. The United States, as you say, was about a universal vision, a new model of human self-governance that people like Jefferson, who you mentioned, hoped that it would be a model for the entire world. The, the Jews, when they created the state of Israel in 1948, understood that there would be many citizens of the state of Israel who would not be Jews. That was obvious, and that was totally fine with them. But it was clear that the purpose of the country was not a universal vision. It was not when in the course of human events, or in the words of Emma Lazarus, give me your tired, your poor, teeming masses yearning to breathe free. It was much more about the state created to enable the Jewish people to come back to life. This was the state that was going to say to the Jewish people, you're going to be home once and for all. You are no longer going to be dependent on the goodwill of others to have a place where you can live. This is going to be the place where you're going to speak your ancient language, where the calendar of the country is going to be the calendar of your people, where the curriculum of your schools will be the curriculum of your sacred texts and your history and so forth. So Israel was a very particularist project. And by the way, the more that we live in a world which takes on a kind of a universalist aura, people are committed to, you know, uh, helping people all over the world, which is obviously very, very important. Uh, I think people are increasingly uncomfortable with particularism. And I could say specifically that young American Jews, American Jews, of course, being the largest Jewish community in the world after Israel, uh, young American Jews are particularly uncomfortable with a particularist notion because American culture has become so universalist. Uh, that, that's one of the things that makes Israel a very uncomfortable subject for them, which is highly ironic, of course. This um, 75th anniversary has prompted a, a, an appraisal. One of the things that uh, did strike me that, that I hadn't thought about until I, I read in the book was that the eighth decade has not necessarily been lucky for the Jewish nation historically when it comes to unity and sovereignty. 
is that something that that worries you at all? Not just because of the working out of um, how would we describe it, kind of God's covenant and so on, but just for for reasons that you spoke about earlier, that there does seem to be a turning of the tide in global opinion about Israel, including in the United States. Yeah, well, first of all, let's go back to the excellent point that you make about the eighth decade. You know, if you were, look at the Jewish liturgy, for example, that talks about, you know, bring us back together, gather us together from the four corners of the earth, restore us and end the diaspora and the exile and so forth. If you <laughs> took that at face value, it would sound like the default position of the Jewish people is being sovereign in its own land. And every now and then there's an aberration and we get dispersed and we have to pray to be restored back. But in fact, of the three or 4,000 years that the Jews have been a people, they have been unified and sovereign three times. Uh, the first time lasted 73 years, the second time lasted 74 years, and the third time we're now in our 75th year. So one could be a little bit spooked by that by that historical uh, antecedent. And by the way, if, if six or seven months ago, one would have said, well, you know, that's cute, but this is a very different time. Uh, all of a sudden, Israel's facing internal democratic challenges that make many people very worried once again. So first of all, I think, yeah, there is very good reason to be worried. And part of what one sees inside Israeli society is uh, a deep commitment to figuring out now how are we not going to fall into the trap that the first two commonwealths, the one under the first temple and the one under the second temple fell into it. How are we going to make sure that 75 years is not the end of Israel, but the beginning of the next major phase of Israeli history. Now, you say, of course, that uh, is that the tide has turned against Israel internationally. That is both very correct and, to a certain extent, overly kind to the international community. Because, as you saw, as I point out in the book, just a few weeks, actually, after the United Nations had voted in November 1947 to create a Jewish state, the State Department of the United States was already trying to get the United Nations to do that vote over. And it was very obvious that vote was not going to ever pass again. So even in the early months of 1948, uh, it was quite apparent that the United Nations would not have voted to uh, create Israel. And certainly by 1975, when the United Nations declares that Zionism is racism, uh, Israel would not have been created. And during the Arab oil embargo of the 1970s, it would never have happened. So there was a very, very brief window in 1947, early, early 48, when the world felt sufficiently guilty or responsible for what it had either done or allowed to be done to the Jewish people during the Second World War, that a certain sympathy opened up. But that window of sympathy has really closed. And obviously, if you were to go to the United Nations today in 2023 and take a vote, there is not a chance in the world that a Jewish state would be created. What about Israel itself as a, as a country and as a place to live? One of the things that struck me as I was reading the book is that although we think we know a lot about issues like the West Bank and the Palestinians and so on because they're constantly in the news, that we actually know very little about Israel itself and daily life there. One of the things that particularly that struck me was that you establish how the founding of Israel was really as an immigrant state on, on spectacular levels. Um, and one of the results of that is that Israel has become a genuinely multicultural country. It's a genuinely multiracial society now. Tell us a bit more about that and how Israel has developed over the period of 75 years. You know, if one comes from the United States or from England or Australia, 
Uh, one might think, well, I know what Jews look like. I've seen them in my community. I get what Jews look like. And the minute you land in Israel, you realize, of course, that you, you have no idea what Jews look like. Jews come in all different colors. Jews from the Levant are darker than Jews from Europe. Jews from Africa are darker than Jews from the Levant. So Israel is really very much a multicultural country, even internal to the Jewish community. And of course, we have 20% of our population uh, that is Arab, most of them Muslim, some of them Christian. We have Druze and, and Trakeshans and, and, and many others. So Israel is really kind of a very, very heterogeneous society. In many ways, it's a very open society. It is considered to be one of the countries in the world that is most open and embracing of the LGBT community. Uh, it's a country that even though the vast majority of our immigrants came from countries where there was no democratic tradition whatsoever, we have lots of immigrants from the former Soviet Union, lots of immigrants from North Africa, and so on and so forth. Uh, the democracy here, which is uh, very much a hot topic these days, but the democracy here has never missed a beat. There's never been a contended election. There's never been serious allegations of, of election fraud. Every election has taken place on schedule. So it's a very modern country. Obviously, technologically, it's it's really at the very cutting edge of technology. But it's kind of a fascinating combination of a very, very modern Western European-like country, deeply rooted in, in an ancestral homeland, which is also very Middle Eastern. So it's the kind of a place to, that appreciate its, to appreciate its complexity. One really almost needs to walk the ground. But what I try to do in the book, at least a little bit, is to give people the sense of uh, how it is both very Middle Eastern and very modern and European at exactly the same time. Yeah, you show how it's a, a tech powerhouse and uh, and a huge economic success, but but you also show how there's a large gap between rich and poor, which which in many ways comes as a, a surprise for a society which is, after all, rooted in a kind of a religious beliefs about community and so on. So so why is there that large gap? There's the large gap because, unfortunately, when everyone has a free capitalist market economy, those gaps are going to exist. Uh, now, Israel, by the way, it, it's not only because of a religious background. Israel also has a very profound socialist background. It started out as an unabashedly socialist country. Now, some of the socialist safety net uh, still exists here. Israel has a national health care system, which is actually superb. And one can get all sorts of, you know, whatever kind of operation one needs or whatever kind of chemotherapy one might need, et cetera and never take out a credit card. Now, to people who live in Canada or England, that may not sound so surprising, but to Americans, that's almost unthinkable. Uh, so we have certain elements of our social origins that remain uh, free edu public education, free healthcare, which is relatively good. But when Israel transformed itself from being a socialist economy to a capitalist economy, by the way, here the credit goes to Benjamin Netanyahu. He's a very controversial figure these days. But in his days way back when, as a minister of finance, he was a huge success. And he understood that these massive governmental companies like the phone company, the water company, the electric company, the nationalized airline and so forth, all had to be privatized in order for them not to go the way of what was happening in the Soviet Union, for example. Uh, a huge part of the success of our capitalist economy here is thanks to him, believe it or not. But at the same time, once you open up the floodgates, of course, people who are, are better prepared and better educated and perhaps more entrepreneurial are going to go ahead and, and make more money. And especially when you ride the wave of technology, as Israel has done, uh, there's going to be a small crest of people who are really going to do phenomenally well. And what Israel has to try to figure out in the next 25 years is how to continue riding that wave of technology. 
Israel has more companies registered on the NASDAQ than, than, than any other country in the world except for three. Uh, there's not a cell phone, of course, in the world that does not have Israeli technology in it. There's Israeli technology in climate tech, in med tech, and in all sorts. It's really unbelievable what's happening here. We have to figure out how to keep doing that while at the same time, make sure that those who are not able to compete in that economy do not get left behind and our sense of mutual responsibility continues to give them a safety net and even better than a safety net, a very significant and respectable middle-class way of life. Uh, we have a lot of work to do there. There is a huge gap between rich and poor, and it, it is not something that we're proud of. You know, I suppose it, it comes back to that point that you made at the beginning, isn't it? That the founders, they, they dreamed of creating this unique society and, and Israel has always held itself accountable and has been held accountable by others, uh, perhaps to a different moral standard. There's a good example of it. The running sore of the West Bank and relations with the Palestinians is another. Um, just last week, we saw uh, armed Israeli settlers in Palestinian villages after a Hamas shooting, which seemed to kind of capture so many of the different kind of problems to this question. Where are we on that? And, and what is the, rather than rehearsing the rights and wrongs of this question, what do you think the consensus is in Israel itself at the moment? Well, at the moment, the consensus in Israel, I wouldn't say wall to wall, but an overwhelming majority, uh, people are appalled by what happened with the settlers uh, this past week. There was, as you pointed out, a murder of four completely innocent Israelis at a gas station in the West Bank. They were just doing their business shopping and filling their cars. They were gunned down at basically point blank range. But in response to that, settlers went and, and torched houses and cars and attacked Palestinians and burned Qurans. Uh, as a Jew, as an Israeli, I was appalled and I was humiliated by that behavior. Now, I'll tell you, last night I was watching the Israeli news and uh, Israel has actually arrested some of the people who did that. And in a very unusual step, has not allowed them to see their lawyers yet. So they are locked up in jail and they are, these are the Jews who are locked up in jail and are not allowed to see their lawyers yet. And the, the news was interviewing their, their parents um, who were actually in some crazy kind of way trying to not justify, but to explain the rage that these kids felt and how one has to understand how threatened they felt. But Israelis are not buying it. By and large, Israelis are appalled by that kind of behavior. And so, look, Israelis last week went through both, both sets of extreme emotions. One is being appalled by the fact that innocent Jews were mowed down at gunpoint by, uh, by a Palestinian. Uh, and at the same time, being appalled that Jews, Jewish settlers particularly, went out and attacked Palestinians. Again, as you say, the, going back and you know, sort of uh, recounting the who started what, when, where, how is not useful now. I think what Israelis understand is that uh, most Israelis would say that in the short run, there is unfortunately no obvious solution to this terrible problem because the Palestinian Authority under the leadership of Abu Abbas really still has not come to terms with the permanence of the state of Israel. But at the same time, most Israelis understand that to have these millions of Palestinians under Israeli control for the long run would be a terrible, terrible thing for Israel's conscience, for Israel's morality, for the nature of Israel's soul. Uh, and that one has to hope and pray that even if we can't do it in the next five years or 10 years, at some point, there's got to be a way in which Israelis and Palestinians can live autonomously, sovereignly next to each other and put this conflict behind us. Now, our listeners might be saying, well, yeah, that's namby-pamby. Wouldn't it be nice if whatever? But let's remember that in 1948, the idea that Israel would have peace with Egypt, with Jordan, 
with the UAE, with Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco, and be having conversations about peace with Saudi Arabia, that would have all sounded ridiculous also. But we have all of those peace agreements. Um, they are all relatively, well, some of them are newer than others. Egypt is 79, Jordan is 94, UAE and Bahrain and Sudan and Morocco are all in the last couple of years, and Saudi Arabia is even as we speak. Uh, the, the seemingly impossible is actually possible. That's why I guess one of the reasons that I called the book Impossible Takes Longer uh, is because impossible is not impossible. It just takes a little bit longer. The Palestinian one, it's not impossible for us to figure out a way for this to work out. Uh, we're not there yet. Tragically, both a minority of Israeli Jews and a minority of Palestinian Arabs are in favor of a two-state solution. So it may not be a two-state solution, but there are other options that are out there. Some way or another, though, we have to figure out a way for Israel not to control millions of people and for those other millions of people to give up their drive to destroy the Jewish state. I'm a believer that we can get there. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting because you're, I mean, you're very open in the book in, in presenting criticism of your own position, because there are, there are people, um, leading Jewish academic that you quote, for example, who argue that this undermines the entire project, one Jewish academic. Uh, you say, right, Zionism is a failure on liberal grounds. If it cannot offer others the same rights of self-determination, it offers Jews. So, so they're, they're definitely, as well as criticism coming from the outside, there's an internal debate which is going on here too. Absolutely. And I think that that debate is very healthy. And the minute that debate dies down, which I hope it never will, uh, we would be much impoverished. But look, Jefferson clearly had a certain vision for America. It did not include uh, egalitarianism when it came to race, to be sure, because Jefferson was a slave owner himself. But there are many things about America that would appall Jefferson. I mean, you go to downtown America and you see people sleeping in the streets and you see the wave of uh, drug overdoses, you see gun violence and so forth. There's a lot of things one could point to about America and say, my God, that country is an abject failure. Uh, but it's not. It's an extraordinary success with huge, huge problems. And that's what I would say to that uh, academic that I mentioned in the book. I would say, yeah, I agree with you. Israel should not be controlling millions of other people. First of all, it's not so clear what the alternative to that at this moment in 2023 might be. Uh, but even when a country faces tremendous problems, it does not make the country a failure. If Australia has a problem with First Nations who were there before, uh, that's a huge moral issue for Australia. If England has a problem with immigrants or France has a problem with immigrants, Germany has now the rise of a neo-Nazi right, which just uh, very recently won an election in an area which it had never done since the Second World War. All these countries have huge problems to address. I don't think we have the right to give up on them so easily. It's like anything that one loves. Uh, if you love the country from which you come, or in my case, the country to which one moved, uh, genuine love is uh, that I'm with it through thick and thin. I'm open to a full accounting of its shortcomings, but I understand what it is that I love about it. And my role as a patriot is to try to take the time that I have on earth and to make the country more moral, more successful, more living up to the vision that its founders had. What about the, the wider geopolitical position of Israel in the region? Uh, as you point out, this is really the first time in Israel's history that there's been no obvious military threat from Arab states, that there was peace with Egypt in the 70s, Jordan in the 90s, more recently the UAE, uh, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan. Even relations with Saudi Arabia have normalized um, to some degree. So th this really does feel like a new phase in terms of Israel as a Middle Eastern power. 
It definitely does. Let's assume for a moment that Iran does not become nuclear, because if it does, that changes the entire equation of what you and I are chatting about. But, you know, many people are aware that Israel is in the midst of what some people call the judicial crisis or a constitutional crisis. And we're having huge arguments over the role of the Supreme Court and the constitution of the Supreme Court, whether we should try to write a constitution and so forth. It's all very complicated and very, very divisive here. Um, but what some people point out is, whoa, everybody, let's just remember something. For the first 70 or so years, we didn't have the luxury of arguing about the Supreme Court or arguing about a constitution because we were so busy trying to stay alive. Uh, and again, leaving the possibility of a nuclear Iran out of the picture for a moment, there's just no force out there that can take Israel down. I mean, Palestinian terror can do tremendous damage. It can make a lot of people miserable. But you can't take over a country without putting boots on the ground, and they don't have boots to put on the ground. Israel, for the first time really since its creation, is not existentially threatened by any neighbor or any country even further away. And that gives us the luxury of beginning to ask more important and profound questions about what kind of a society we want to be. That could all be reversed, as I intimated a moment ago, uh, if Iran were to cross the nuclear threshold, which I don't believe any Israeli government is going to allow to happen if it can stop it, and whether it can or it can't is obviously something that I know nothing about. Uh, but I don't believe any Israeli government is willingly going to let Iran cross the threshold, because if it does that, then it immediately turns the clock back and Israel once again becomes focused on survival, not on the question of what flourishing really is. And we've moved from a question of survival to a question of what flourishing looks like, which is uh, a very healthy problem to have. And you mentioned that uh, the new government after last year's elections. Uh, what's the story there? I mean, that I know that a number of liberal critics have expressed concerns about some of the more intolerant, perhaps, attitudes towards liberal values and so on. What's your feeling about the direction of travel uh, for Israeli society and politics? Well, the most recent election was, uh, was an appalling result, even for many people on the right. Many people who are on the right because they are, they tend to the right over economic issues or over foreign policy issues, were still appalled by the appointment of people like uh, Betzala Smotrich or Itamar Ben-Gvir or Avi Maoz, who are people who are very much on the extreme right. And one of the ways that I always try to take the temperature of Israeli society is to talk to my taxi drivers, because taxi drivers tend to be Likud voters. So they tend to be on the right. And just this past Friday, I was coming back from the airport and a guy that's driven me many times, and we've sort of learned not to talk politics with each other because we don't agree about politics, but I like him a lot. He's a nice guy uh, and a very dependable driver. And uh, we were just driving by and we saw all the barricades set up for the protests the following night, uh, Saturday night, uh, which happened every Saturday night because of this judicial review stuff. And he said, oh, yeah, look that they're setting up for the protests for tomorrow night. And I said, uh, what do you think about all that? He goes, I don't watch the news. I don't listen to the news. It upsets me. But that was, of course, all he needed to begin to then give me a huge lecture. And what he said was this. He said, look, I'm a Likud voter. I've always voted Likud and I tend right. But I'm horrified by and ashamed of this government. This government has no reason to be. We need term limits because Bibi Netanyahu should not be prime minister. Uh, it's appalling the people that he appointed, etc., uh, etc. Et so I think one should be very careful not to draw far-reaching conclusions about where Israeli society as a whole is headed uh, based on the results of one election. Netanyahu comported himself in a very clever but devious way, which I won't go into now, the details for our listeners about why he put this particular government together. But he put together a group that many people find really, really appalling. And I can tell you that when I go to the protests every Saturday night, every single Saturday night, 
the anti-judicial reform protests. Uh, I see people whom I know personally who are very much on the political right and people who are on the political left and people who are religious, people who are secular. One of the major speakers this past Saturday night at the protest was an Israeli Arab woman. So these protests are actually showing that there is a much wider center of agreement in Israeli society than the results of these particular elections might suggest. Now, the longer the conflict with the Palestinians endures, uh, the more the right will ultimately be strengthened, and that would be very bad for the soul of Israel. Not because the left is right, but because I think we need to put this conflict aside, let millions of people live not under the boot of, of Israel and live their own lives. So I am concerned about the rightward trend in Israeli politics, and I think that some of that is simply a result of now more than 50 years of this conflict going on. But I would not draw huge conclusions from the results of this particular election, which I think were more extreme than the Israeli body politic is. And, if, and all the polls are showing, by the way, uh, Richard, right now, that if the, if the elections were to be held right now, today, um, Netanyahu would lose and his party would lose. And the parties that would actually take the majority in the parliament would be the center. So Israelis, I think, are awakening to the fact that they were kind of asleep at the wheel that a very hardline, right-wing, somewhat racist, highly intolerant government was put together, uh, and many Israelis would like to turn back the hands of time. Uh, and elections do happen here. So um, the likelihood is that at some point in the future, we're going to see something much more moderate. So the book is Impossible Takes Longer, 75 years after its creation, has Israel fulfilled its founders' dreams? It's written by my guest, Daniel Gordis, and published by Echo. But for now, Daniel, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks for having me, Richard. Really a pleasure. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. 